Hello, welcome to the Taiji Notebook Podcast. I'm your host, Graham Barlow, and this is the podcast for everything I find interesting in martial arts. My guest this episode is Matthew Kruger, who hails all the way from sunny Alaska, where he runs his own podcast called Walking with the Tengu, which explores classic texts and writings for the modern martial artist. Matthew is a fellow practitioner of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and also practices the Japanese sword art of Aedo and the Chinese throwing art of Shuai Zhao. We get on to how Matthew combines these three arts together in his personal practice later. We think you'll find it pretty interesting. Today, our main topic of discussion is warriorship and what it means to be a warrior in the modern world, or not, as the case may be. But first, we start off with the topic of performance in martial arts. This is inspired by my recent trip to a pro wrestling event over here in Bristol where I took my son to watch Total Chaos, which is a local wrestling promotion, and it was great fun. So, let's get into it now. Here he is, Matthew Kruger. Hi Matthew, how's it going? It's going wonderful. Thank you uh, for setting this all up. It's, uh, I know, very early for you and quite late for me, but... Uh... Not too bad, it's, it's 7.30ish. Oh, okay. I'm okay, it's alright. <laughs> good, good. But you're um, way over there in Alaska, aren't you? Yes, uh, up here in Alaska, which when you think about what a time we live in, where you know two martial artists on opposite sides of the world can have this conversation, it's an incredible time to be alive. <laughs> yeah, so. it is. So, uh, so last night I, I went to my first pro wrestling event with my son. <laughs> How was that? <laughs> it was awesome. It was really good. This is a total chaos in Bristol. Mm. I'm gonna. I'll, I'll be writing about that soon. I think because, you know, it's a martial art. It is a martial art. It's just very blatant about its showbiz potential. You know, <laughs> whereas I think yes. a lot of other martial arts, especially Chinese ones, pretend that there is no performance side at all, while obviously performing. <laughs> which yes, yes. <laughs> which which well, it's... has always fascinated me. I don't know what you think about that. Uh, it, it's an interesting topic. You had. Paul Bowman, in this case, I've been following his work for years now, and there's, I, I don't remember the exact one, but there's been, it may have been Ben Judkins, who also works with him in that, that area yeah. of martial arts studies. But, you know, they've talked about the, the performative aspect of the martial arts uh, and the entertainment uh, aspect to it. And there's always been, you know, you go back to pre-modern eras and the transition into the modern era, both in Japan and in China, and I would argue in various Western countries, also had a entertainment aspect to it. I have a very old photo, I believe from France, which has plastered across the top of it, it says Jiu-Jitsu. And it looks yeah. like, you know, 1910, possibly late 1800 circus performers yeah. doing nothing <laughs> related to Jiu-Jitsu. The transition, the entertainment value of it I think impacts all martial arts. I mean, look at judo in the Olympics. You know, you're talking about pro wrestling. You look at pro wrestling where it was a uh, hundred years ago, and it was a little different than it is now. Yeah, um, it was. exactly. I mean, you know, I, I was thinking the other day that in our jiu-jitsu academy, we bow to the photos on the wall of the masters, and it's it's the Gracie family. And then it goes back to Count Coma. I mean, mm. Count Coma is a wrestling name. It it just sounds like like you know the, the Baron or or something, mm -hmm. doesn't it? And mm -hmm. he used to go around and do sort of you know f fighting the locals at fun fairs type events. Right. And in Victorian England, we had 
tours of Japanese jiu-jitsu fighters mm -hmm. putting on demonstrations in the theatres in the Victorian right. age, you know. I mean, that that is the origin of jiu-jitsu, really, if you think about mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. But yes. um, but these days, if, if you try and say it's something to do with pro wrestling, people get very sort of funny about it and like, oh, that's nonsense, it's all made up. Well, <laughs> it's become clownish at this point. Um, and I say that in all due respect to it, of course. You know, it is entertainment, and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, but to the outsider, it can appear comical. Mm. Um, and we have seen, you know, plenty of people transition from that arena into, let's say, acting. Yeah. And so, you know, there is definitely a physical aspect to it. You know, there's great strength and stamina and agility flexibility needed to do it and yet there's also a, uh, a theater aspect to it as well and so in a sense there's a cross diversity to being able to function uh, as a member of that world that I would suspect most people find pretty challenging. <laughs> yeah and also I mean I've, I've been talking to Scott Phillips who's a rather controversial character in mm. martial arts but he he made the very good point that a lot of the skills required for acting are the ones required for self-defense because you, you hear serious martial artists talk all the time about how self-defense isn't a bunch of techniques, it's a mindset, and it's a way yeah. of interacting with somebody. And, I mean, what is acting? It, it's a mindset and a way of interacting with somebody. You know, you, you sure. take on a persona, you act, you you use sleight of hand, deceit. All, all these things are part and parcel of the self-defense world. Anyway, we're getting very off topic. I, I, I <laughs> didn't are. want to talk about this. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> and that's okay, I mean... Uh, it, just to tie it back, you know that that performative aspect might be practical in the sense of de-escalation. There's a certain amount of acting that needs to go into dealing with a high-stress emotional situation and maintain your cool and behave in a way meant to influence that situation towards an end that you find to be positive. Hmm. Um, so there, there could be some real self-defense value to this as well. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. I think there is. There is. It's just not having a narrow focus. I think with your your opinions and your, your your vision of what things are, but anyway, you run a podcast which we have to talk about first, and that's Walking with the Tengu. Now this is a brilliant podcast. It's a to me it is it, you're looking at classic texts that aren't necessarily martial arts texts, but are part of the whole world that martial arts came out of. Do you want to just talk about about your podcast and what you're aiming to do there? Sure. Um... And I just want to say I've been listening to you for years, and I appreciate you? <laughs> uh, your kind words. Uh, it means a lot. You know, you've had a number of fairly famous individuals on your podcast that I've listened to, so I feel a little imposter syndrome <laughs> getting to to talk about that. But yes, the uh, the podcast came out of a series of events back in the ancient days before social media. There were these things called forums. Um, and I recall one day after writing up a long post about history and linguistics and the use of the term jujitsu, both in Japanese and then in late 19th century English and then, you know, 20th century English, it occurred to me that, you know, this could be turned into a paper. So I wrote a paper, uh, posted it on academia.edu, then let it sit for a few years. And I kept getting responses to it and thinking about it, and it occurred to me that there was a kind of an intersection there that could be explored. But 
what ended up happening was there was a quote that I had heard over the years, which is widely misattributed to Thucydides, which is a nation that draws too broad a difference between its scholars and its warriors will have its thinking done by cowards and its fighting done by fools. The actual quote is from Sir William Francis Butler <laughs> and is a little more wordy than the one that gets thrown around, but I like it too, which is the nation that will insist on drawing a broad line of demarcation between the fighting man and the thinking man is liable to find its fighting done by fools and its thinking done by cowards. And it occurred to me that a lot of the martial arts that I had been exposed to were focused on how to do violence, but not why or when. So the third event that occurred was I was reading this work called The Demon Sermon of the Martial Arts. Mm -hmm. And as I was reading it, there was discussions about sports versus self-defense training and various topics that I see people arguing about online today. Mm. And, you know, mm. this work is from 400 years ago. And it occurred to me that the things people were talking about four centuries ago is very little, if not different <laughs> at all, from what we're talking about today. Yeah. It still goes on. <laughs> yeah. Um, and really a lot of the, you know, uh, I recall reading some of it and thinking this is literally what people are saying today. Mm. Um, you know, in a completely different time, completely different culture, and thus a very, very different worldview. And yet the topics, the principles under discussion really haven't changed a whole lot. And I would even argue that the relationship with violence that people had back then was perhaps different than what we have today. At least if you live in a first world nation, we have a certain amount of uh, stability that perhaps uh, those coming out of the Sengoku era did not have in medieval Japan. And yet these discussions weren't all that different. So I thought, okay, this is interesting. And I started to take notes and I thought, well, why don't I turn these notes into a discussion, basically a monologue, and thus the podcast was born, which was just, you know, there's stuff that people have been talking about for centuries. And I don't think the problems have really changed all that much. Our relationship with violence, how we mediate that, how we handle it. And so I thought it'd be interesting to try to take these classical works and try to relate it to our modern era. And here we are. Yeah, I mean, you, you, your, your, your scope is vast because you do, you do a lot of Japanese things, a lot of Japanese writing, a bit of Chinese stuff, and, but also the, you take in the Greeks as well, don't you? And that kind of warrior yeah. culture they had. Yeah, uh, you know, I plan to hit the Icelandic sagas. There's a couple Indian epics that I'd like to hit as well. One of the earliest references to the idea of just a just war justum bellum in the latin mm. is um i forget the name of it but is in an indian epic where they you know two semi deities discuss whether it's moral to use a certain weapon against one's enemies and these are you know discussions we have today is it moral yeah. and ethical to use certain weapons against others so yeah it's geneva convention stuff isn't it mm-hmm mm-hmm and that was, you know, I, if I recall correctly, this epic is over 4,000 years old now. So, you know, somebody was thinking about it a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's fascinating to think that they were, were, we've just been regurgitating the same old stuff over and over through <laughs> human conflict yeah. for, for thousands of years and not really getting anywhere. <laughs> 
Yeah. So um, one word you mentioned there was the W word, the, the warriorship word. Now, mm. Randall Davis from Kung Fu Conversations, he, he's been trying to get a bunch of us podcasters together to talk about warriorship. And mm-hmm. I was initially reticent to talk about that at all. And I didn't really want to be part of the project. But then I heard your most recent episode where you had a long discussion on warriorship with the guy from New Zealand whose name suddenly escapes me. You'll have to fill that in. It's okay, yeah. Dean Suter from the Musha Shugio podcast. Yeah, and, and um, so I, just to backtrack, I have a problem with the, the concept of warriorship mm-hmm. applied to martial artists. I just, it just kind of, there's something about it that I don't like, especially in the jiu-jitsu world. Because mm-hmm. you, you, you do jiu-jitsu as well, don't you? And you've yes. been doing it for yes. uh, like 10 years longer than me. So you're well, an old hand at this I, business. L- l- let me uh, just caveat that with that. I did take an eight-year break in there. <laughs> okay. Um, I, uh, I am probably not as far as long as I could be. So. <laughs> okay, right, all right, yeah. The old eight-year break, yeah. Well, no- normally having kids is the thing that does that, isn't it? <laughs> That's exactly what it was. Yeah, yeah there you go. <laughs> I knew it. Um, in the jiu-jitsu world, we're full of... I mean, the the internet side of jiu-jitsu is huge. The, the, the social media about it, the YouTube clips about it, people showing techniques. Um, I mean, it's fascinating culture. But part of that seems to be this, this sort of sharing of memes about lions and wolves and mm-hmm. samurai. You know, like... Mm-hmm. Um, they threw me to the walls and I came back the leader of the pack. And um, if you want to train with lions, you have to do lion stuff. And right. and then, and, then like, and, yeah. and, and pictures of samurai with a like a modern jiu-jitsu logo on them mm-hmm. somewhere. And I, I just find this whole idea of um, people thinking they're warriors when they go to a, like dress up in pajamas and go to a class three times a week, a little bit distasteful to real warriors who we still have today. Who's if, you know, done two tours of duty in Afghanistan or something. Mm. I mean, the idea of me telling somebody like that that I'm a warrior, I would find a little bit embarrassing. Sure. And there's another side to it, which is in the run-up to this Second World War, the Japanese government used that whole Budo culture of being a samurai as a recruitment tool to inspire nationalism and pride in their past as a way to get people to go and join the army and drop bombs on people and I find that easily manipulated side to that culture again something I'm wary of and don't want to get involved in <laughs> sure yeah. so I don't know what, what you think about those two things well uh, you're absolutely right I mean there's a reason the American occupation forces banned the practice of Japanese martial arts after taking over Japan yeah. um, you know I, I always like to bring up the fact that karate was not banned because it was not Japanese, it was Okinawan. But, and it's probably why there were so many Americans that brought karate back to the U.S. after World War II. But, you know, judo, kendo, those two in particular, there were other ones as well. But, you know, Aikido was was banned as well. But all the typical, what we would call Japanese budo, were banned because of its connection to the nationalistic brainwashing that was it was used for. And I seem to recall... I can't quote the source, but this is one of the things that Jigoro Kano fought against leading up to the imperial military era, and may have, you know, his connection to the education system in Meiji Japan 
may and his you know pushback against that militarism may have been led to his you know suspected poisoning hmm. but either way <laughs> whether or not he was actually poisoned it's not provable he died and thus you know judo and kendo in particular were co-opted into this like you said brainwashing program and you know i kind of alluded to it in the conversation with dean but there is a necessity to convince people that it's okay to go kill those people over there that those people are bad and that it's okay to use lethal force to end their lives so i think your your hesitancy is warranted and i think it's worth talking about and thinking about this because at the end of the day if we as martial artists uh, traffic in the interaction of violence then there is a concentric sphere that overlaps with those who go out and do war. Um, that's another thing that I have, uh, you know, in this warriorship conversation, have thought a bit about is, you know, the definition to me of a warrior in its most basic sense is someone who goes and does war, whereas that is not necessarily someone who is, let's say, a guardian or a defender. You know, both may do violence, but one is like a active uh, you know going out and actively doing something versus one is meeting violence that's coming in and not everyone of course agrees on that definition but at least one sense of linguistics uh, I, I think there's a difference there and maybe that's a little bit at the heart of what you're getting at I don't know yeah I mean I think to me warriors go to war that's it and I looked at the definition of warrior on the internet <laughs> and, it, and it said um <laughs> An, an experienced war, uh, soldier. So it wasn't just a, mm -hmm. somebody who went to it went to war. It was somebody who'd kind of seen a battle or two, or been through the mill a bit. It was the I think the idea was on older, more experienced major warrior. Um, sure. But either way, I don't. I have martial artist friends who call themselves warriors, and it really bugs me because I don't think they are, and I would never call myself a warrior. I just don't feel comfortable with that. Whether it's a, a modern warrior or a, a peaceful warrior, it, it, it's still got the word warrior in, and, and I, it, it, just, right. it just rubs me the wrong way, and I don't like it. <laughs> I can't remember where it was. It was some jiu-jitsu forum somewhere. It may have been Facebook. I may have seen it on Reddit. I don't remember now. But exactly what you were talking about, there was someone who posted, I've got a screenshot somewhere, who's like, no, you're not a Viking. You're not a samurai. <laughs> you're not a gladiator. You do pajama wrestling. Get yeah, exactly. over yourself. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and... Yeah, you know, I, I see it in my own gym where there are a certain amount of people who kind of take that persona that you're, you've described. And I'm like, I'm just here to have fun. You know, I'm not, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, so as an example, I, I take issue when someone describes a jujitsu match as a fight. It's not a fight. It's yeah, that's wrestling. Another, that's another thing, isn't it? But then again, do you call an MMA match a fight? I get why they do. Uh, certainly closer to what I would describe as a fight, but it's also not a fight in the sense, uh, you know, we, we didn't talk about it here yet, but I do have a background in law enforcement and mm. a very brief one, but uh, I did experience violence in that context as well. And that's closer to what I would describe as a fight. Yeah. I mean, to me, if you start calling yourself a warrior, I wouldn't have an issue with that because you've actually done some warrior shit, you know, <laughs> mm -hmm. whereas. Sure, sure. I mean, people that, yeah, uh, the MMA one's difficult because 
at the end of some matches of MMA, people are just sort of they're completely exhausted, covered in blood, and and the commentator says something like they've been through a war, and it it kind of is true, but equally it's still a sport and they can stop any time they want, you know. Right, so yeah. it's not a fight in that sense, is it? Yeah, and you don't see the same kinds of, I would say, moral and ethical conundrums that you see in actual... Again, I've not actually been on a battlefield, but from what I understand of the way we interact with uh, death and pain and suffering is different when you viscerally experience it. So, you know, I, I haven't actually seen anyone die on a battlefield, but I've held people as they died, you know, as they died violently. So in that regard, there, there's something there that you don't experience, I think, in a match. And that's where I, I typically end up with, you know, jujitsu or MMA, because they are all expressions. There's, if we think of violence as a pie, you know, as a pie graph, it's, you know, mm. jujitsu is a slice of that pie. MMA is a slice of that pie. There's a little bit of overlap there. I would argue that most martial arts are a slice of that pie, but none of them encompass all of it because, you know, a schoolyard bullying situation is not the same as a riot or a gang fight or a battlefield. And so each of these are different expressions of violence. And so when someone talks about doing something in, I'm using air quotes there for those listening, the street, well, the context matters. You know, because what a, a soldier faces in a low-intensity conflict is different from what someone's experiencing in a ring or on the street or a drunk uncle at a wedding or a road rage incident. I mean, we can come up with so many different variations for violence that it's challenging to try to narrow any of these down as representative of the entire pie. Does that make sense? Yeah, I guess I'm... St- I was talking to Paul Bowen about violence mm-hmm. in jiu-jitsu because we were we were just commenting that what we do is inherently violent, it's really violent, but nobody thinks about it as being violent when you're doing it because because your identity is mm-hmm. different. You're you know, you you, you go into a, like a, a safe room with with mats on the floor, you're all wearing a different uniform. You've kind of stripped away your your sense of self in a way and it's not personal mm-hmm. at all. And somehow violence doesn't seem to be an issue or really a, a factor in what you're doing or, or what you're thinking about when you're doing jiu-jitsu. And, but yet if you stop to think about all the things you are doing would, would kill somebody. I mean, there's, <laughs> you know, there's sure. no other way to think about it. Well, so um, it's, it's an interesting conundrum in martial arts, how we, how we think about violence, but, but, but it's almost we, we look away from it while sort of acknowledging mm-hmm. its presence. Yeah. Think about the... F- new white belt that comes in it's their first class they don't know what's going on they've never experienced this before maybe they're not used to the closeness of it you know um, there's a certain amount of closeness yeah. in Brazilian jiu-jitsu that is different than other things that people typically do and so y- you know you see how a brand new person comes in and interacts with that situation and I suspect there's a lack of comfort there that we once you get used to it because um, you're right, once you're in there, once this is a safe place, um, a known place, it's it's not so bad. You know, yeah, you're getting smothered, yeah, it's uncomfortable, mm. but none of us typically feel like our life is actually in danger. The stress that comes from 
feeling like you may die or be f seriously physically injured is not a normal part of the practice. Um, I mean, sure, it still happens, and that's where, you know, I'm, it's on the edge of it. Um, but I think this kind of gets at the heart of what you're saying, which is, like, I understand why people misattribute it towards warriorship as it's dipping its toe towards that direction. But you're right, it's not... Martial artists can be warriors, but are not, by the nature of simply doing the martial arts, do not necessarily become warriors, if that if that makes sense, yeah. Yeah, I think yeah. that's fair. That's fair. Yeah. Anyway, that was why I, I kind of... I didn't want to talk about it. Now we've just talked about it, so I have talked about it. So there you go. <laughs> well, it's... But you... you you help me. You help me. You help me have that conversation. I think because uh, you had a very sensible conversation on on your last podcast about warriorship. And I thought, okay, I, I yeah, there's there's something in this that we could have a conversation about. So that's good. So if I understand you correctly, and correct me if I'm wrong, your definition of the word warrior primarily links then to a military definition. Would that be fair? Yeah, but I I would also incorporate. Law enforcement into uh, people who've people who've seen you know sure. action, I think. I don't have a problem with those type of people being being warriors. Perhaps then know? it's those that move towards violence as opposed to moving away from violence. Um, maybe, maybe, but there's, I think there's still a military okay. component to the way I think about it as well. That it involves war, and the the people that go to war or have been to war. So what about other first responders, such as like a firefighter or an EMT? Well, I used to teach a firefighter. Mm. I used to teach Tai Chi to him. And he'd never been in physical... Well, maybe he had been in physical altercations, but he never really talked about them. But he, he would talk about mm. trauma and having held somebody's brain in, their ha in his hands, you know, as, they, as, as he, he scooped them up off the floor from a traffic accident yeah. or something. You know, those, those sort of... You know, he he talk about things like that. So he was kind of reliving trauma mm -hmm. occasionally. I don't know if I'd think of him as a mm -hmm. warrior, though. I mean, pe people who people who have serious medical conditions, they have a, a a battle with whatever it is, say cancer. They quite often get called warriors, and I wouldn't like to tell those people they're not if they if they choose to sure. use that word because they've they're living through something or have lived through something that most people will never experience and. Uh, could never imagine. So it, it, it's a grey yeah, area, sure. yeah. I guess. <laughs> well, and this is, I think, what makes this co conversation so interesting is because there are certainly... Um, Randall did an episode about a couple of people who had challenging physical ailments and how they overcame them. And he was talking about how they're a... Uh, for him, a definition of a war... You know, meeting that definition of a warrior... You know, meanwhile, Dean cited a study from the Naval Academy on characteristics that, you know, word associations of relating to the characteristics of a warrior that were very different from that. And so, you know, kind of getting back to some of Paul Bowman's work and Ben Judkins is this idea and entertainment is the fact that our perceptions of what a warrior is, particularly, I think, in First World Nations, has been influenced by entertainment by movies, by television, by video games. Um, and yes, and so I yeah. think this is partly where, you know, in the jiu-jitsu community, 
when people think about a warrior, that's, you know, they think about the samurai, they think about <laughs> uh, the Viking or, you know, the Spartan or whatever, um, because that's their representations of warriors that they have been exposed to, as opposed to individuals who have actually experienced a battlefield. Yeah. Good old Tom Cruise has got a lot to answer for with The Last Samurai, hasn't he? Yeah, that he does. <laughs> <laughs> when you look at the historical samurai, most of them who lived through the Tokugawa period were glorified tax collectors, really. Mm. I mean, they they didn't actually fight in battles for... There was a good 400 years where there were no battles because it was a period of peace. Right. Um, right. And the samurai class basically just collected taxes off people and beat them up if they wouldn't give them the taxes. So right. yeah. having that tattooed on your arm, I find really, really a sort of a weird concoction. But like you say, it's because of films. It's because of our our culture and our our perception of what a samurai is these days, I think. Sure. Well, I mean, let's think about the Chinese martial arts for a moment. Um, you know, during the late 19th century, early 20th century, there was a shift. Um, you know, I have a number of older Shuijiao manuals where, you know, from the like 1912 era, um, where mm -hmm. they are equating using Shuijiao for nationalistic purposes in the same way that Kano was using Judo in Japan, right? I don't think they cite Kano. I think they just cite Japan and talk about Judo and like, we have this Shuijiao and we need to use it for the same reasons. Um, oh, well, that would be the, um, th that period, they, they really looked towards Japan as the answer to their problems in mm -hmm. 1912. That was um, everything from Japan was great, and they sent they sent lots of people over there to learn their ways to so they could yeah. also become a, a nation that had an empire. You know, Kano actually sponsored a school um, specifically for Chinese students to come over, and um, I, I believe it was to focus on learning education um, so they could uh, teach in the modern sense of the word. Um, mm. And there was an adjacent judo school to that that some of them participated in, but but I mean. The perception in the Chinese martial arts, uh, you know, we've talked about from an entertainment standpoint, the classical stories like The Water Margin, Journey mm -hmm. to the West, there were perceptions of the martial arts in those, you know, all the stories that grew up around the Shaolin and whether they did or did not do certain things, you know, there were perceptions within the culture prior to the modern era that shaped the way that people perceive the martial arts. I mean, to this day, I have a wife who was born in Taiwan and her parents are very, very uh, culturally Chinese. And mm. their perception of the martial arts is that gangsters and stupid people do the martial arts. <laughs> so, and you know, I think that's a, that's a every, every wife I've ever known's perception of what the husband does. He's <laughs> <laughs> comes to martial arts. <laughs> Why are you doing that thing? It's a waste of time. <laughs> well, uh, I, I am blessed with a wife that um, actually participates in this with me. And so, you know, oh. we have a family oh, where yeah. everyone does it. <laughs> I, I know <laughs> that's, that's rare. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, very rare. So, um, but, you know, culturally, at least in my experience uh, in Taiwan, <laughs> is that it's not necessarily seen as a thing that respectable people do. Now, again, we go back 100 years. We look at uh, people like Sun Lutong, and then, of course, Ip Man with Wing Chun, there was an attempt with both of them to bring a certain amount of respectability to the martial arts, uh, to Gong Fu. Uh, mm, I, I have ums and ahs. You carry on. I've got ums and ahs it's on okay. that point. It's okay. It's <laughs> okay. You know, my understanding is that Ip Man primarily taught upper class. 
whereas, for example, like Hungar yes. primarily taught uh, lower class individuals. Yeah, and Choli, Choli, um, well, Choli Fuck was the, the big rival to right, Wing Chun. Right, right, yeah. And that was the, that was a working man's martial art, and then you had mm -hmm. the, the middle class. Right, um, uh, so let's tie that to Brazil for a moment. You know, the Gracies taught richer people. Capoeira survived in the favelas. So there was a class distinction in Brazil back in the 1920, well, that's too early, 1930s, 1940s, within the martial arts. And so the perception, again, of how the public views what violence is impacts how they interact with the martial arts. You know, I gr joke that we do South American ground karate because people don't really understand. I mean, they, y you do what? You... Uh, I, I can't tell you how many people have been like, oh, you do jujitsu, and they make like hand chops, you know? <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, we've it's, all I, had I, those I believe the phrase, is, um, the phrase is Mexican grand karate. That works too, yeah. <laughs> 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 so, um, and, and I get a certain amount of that too. I see that in some of the, hist in, in the past. Um, the perceptions, you know, the performers in Hong Kong who did martial arts, who made careers in the entertainment industry predated the ones that we know. I mean, Jackie Chan is the most obvious one. Sammo Hung is another. But, you know, they came out of the opera scene, uh, the Cantonese yeah. opera scene. Um, and yet, mm -hmm. you know, they, they would fall under my definition of martial artists. But they're not warriors, you know. And that's no discredit to them. They're hard workers, you know. They're, they're incredible martial artists. But are they warriors? I... I don't think most people would typically think of Bruce Lee, Sammo Hung, Jackie Chan, Jet Li as being warriors. And that's, again, yeah. I'm not discrediting them. They're just, they're different. Yeah, yeah. My, um, my Tai Chi lineage and Kung Fu lineage comes out of Hong Kong. Mm. So, so my, my teacher would, um, my teacher's teacher came from Hong Kong to Britain in 1979, like, maybe early 80s, mm -hmm. something like that. But my teacher will always remember that he, he was much more interested in being a doctor than mm. a martial artist because a martial artist was a low-level person, like you're saying. They, they belonged to a low-level class and there, there was no respectability in it. Like, his parents wouldn't think it was respectable to be a martial artist. But if he mm. could be a doctor, like a Chinese medicine doctor, I think he, he specialised in um, uh, bone-setting. There's a word for it, but I've forgotten it. Anyway, it was, it was basically bone, the bone-setting side of things. But sure. you know he did he did he did everything like you know massage and herbalism and everything. So he he once he got to Britain he he got here and the the kung fu boom was just dying off. Mm -hmm. So he thought it was going to carry on. So he he trained a load of people like my teacher um, to win martial arts competitions. So he trained them intensively in the fighty stuff, mm -hmm. and then the boom just disappeared and it all became about healing and everything, which. He just he just kind of switched to being a sort of Chinese doctor because sure. it, to, to, in his culture that was much more respectable anyway. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. It was something that you you could tell people and, and they'd be proud of you, you know. Mm -hmm. Right. And, th and that meant a lot. A martial artist, like you say, it belonged to a lower class. It wasn't a a respectable profession to be involved in, really. Right. Right. Yeah, but like you say, the, the other reason to mention him is that as part of the martial arts tradition, he carried on this teaching or or tradition. It translated into English as Way of the Warrior. Hmm. And it was, it was a mindset training thing. 
Sifu Ran, my teacher, would say that he would he would have these long conversations with Lam Sifu about this way of the warrior concept, and it, so it has the word warrior in it. But it was a way of it was like a morality training, and it was to do with when you would use martial arts on somebody. Right. Um, it was long and involved, and there was a lot to it. But I think if we just said what was the essence of what they were talking about, it was basically in the moment you try and be as aware as possible and have all the facts of the situation and you make your decision and then you just live with it. Like you don't go back and try and redo it. You just, it was kind of like a moving forward in a way that would ease your conscience because you've known you've made the best decision you could possibly at that time. Right. Yeah. So that was, that was quite an interesting, I mean, I, I guess if you relate that back to people fighting on battlefields, they have to, make their decision in the moment and they can't go back and redo it and then they have to live with it so it was i think a lot of it was about how you'd live with the consequences of doing violence so that was quite interesting and that really gets at the heart of um well two things first what you just described is basically at a class on that in the police academy you know Mm. how do you make choices and live with yourself after because sometimes your choices means uh, the classic example from the class is that there's a burning building and there's a kid on one end of the building and a kid on the other. You, you probably heard this one recently. And you, you can only yeah. save one kid. And if you take too long, yeah. they both die. So save one. But by choosing one, you're consigning the other to death. And how do you live with yourself knowing that you chose this person to live and this person to die? Um, you know, it comes up in triage uh, when dealing with a you know a mass casualty event or a mass an event with a lot of people dying is how do you, you need to prioritize your resources. So if you can save a hundred people by letting these other ones die, then, you know, by letting five of them die, then that is, is that a better economical choice than saving five and letting those other hundred die? And and yet, Mm -hmm. you know, how do you choose one person's life over another? So it's very curious that that sort of training was in uh, your lineage because that is one of the key failings I have experienced in the martial arts, which gets back to what we were talking about at the beginning, which is we all train how to do violence, but I don't see a lot of talk about why and when to do violence. Mm. And, and I see some of that in the older martial arts, you know, in the older texts. And I see some of that in, you know, what people would call traditional martial arts. There are some of those discussions And I think we need more of that today in the, air quotes, modern martial arts. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, to jump back into the modern world of jiu-jitsu, there's a lot of of teaching kids about (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) anti-bullying. But but when we get to the adult classes, that whole aspect is just not considered. But then again, it depends on your academy. Is it a self-defense type academy Mm -hmm. or is it a sport jiu-jitsu type academy? I mean, if you're talking sport jiu-jitsu, then ideas of morality and using violence on the street would never even come up but those techniques you're learning are potentially lethal and you're not getting any training in mm-hmm. like the, the when you use them as opposed to the why right i mean competition is uh in the non-malicious sense of the word um effectively amoral there's just no moral content you either win or you don't and there's this i mean i suppose there's a certain amount of you need to not care about hurting the other person because you got to try so hard to get that medal. I mean, you look at ADCC or any of the big 
jujitsu competitions and you need to not really care about the other person. I mean, you're not trying to kill yeah. them, but if they happen to get injured in the process, so be it. Um, and so, but so I guess there is a, a certain amount of ethics in there, but it's not like what we're talking about, you know, so comp- competitive Brazilian jiu-jitsu is effectively amoral and that just, there isn't a moral content to what you're doing. Whereas, mm. you know, when we talk about self-defense, there is a moral content to that. Uh, are you justified in what you're doing in the application of violence to another individual? Are you not? Can you live with yourself if you do do violence and this person dies or is severely injured? So, you know, like you said, what kind of academy are you training at? Well, you know, it makes a difference. But on the other hand, while I know jujitsu can be practiced as a martial art, I find it typically is practiced as a sport, at least amongst the academies that I've experienced. Um, and, you know, I, I know of ones out there that don't, that do have a martial arts component to it. But there's a reason why I hear the word gym thrown around and coach. You know, you go to the gym, you got training mm-hmm. from your coach. Because large swaths of the jiu-jitsu community effectively just practice it as a sport. And I don't mean that in any sort of negative sense. I enjoy doing that myself. But I also recognize that that's not, you know, we both have practiced Chinese martial arts. Um, I got something more out of that than what I was getting out of jiu-jitsu. You know, I love jiu-jitsu. I'm never going to quit it. <laughs> but I don't get the same things out of jiu-jitsu that I got out of other martial arts. And that's why I cross-train in other things. Um, because I'm not finding, at least in the uh, choices I have in my locale, I don't have the ability to train jiu-jitsu as a martial art mm. with other people. I can do it myself, of course. Yeah, so so where I'm training, it's a it's a Gracie Baja school, which is, it's it's squarely in the middle of everything. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, if you had a, like, the you know, the Venn diagram of sport and self-defense and lifestyle and, I don't know, stick another one in to do with jiu-jitsu, um, uh, athletic performance or, or or fitness or something. You know, the Gracie Baja company, I think, it's, mm-hmm. I think you could call it a company. That's fair. Um, you know, they, they, they hit right in the middle. So it's jiu-jitsu mm-hmm. for everyone. So it's a little bit of everything. So we mm-hmm. do, like on our, our basics classes, we... We always start with a stand-up, and it's normally a self-defense type. Like somebody throws a punch, and you mm-hmm. do a hip throw. Then the next technique will be something on the ground, and then something on the ground, and then and then sparring. But there's always a self-defense component, and I find myself gravitating so much more away from that. <laughs> Just, mm-hmm. <laughs> probably because I've been doing it for 10 years, you know. Sure. Um, but I, I just find the self-defense stuff can't keep my interest um, mm-hmm. long-term. I think it, it's... It's interesting, but it's a, for me, it's a short-term thing. You kind of go, oh, okay, now I know how to do that. Good. What's next? And what's next for me is is the sports side, essentially, because there's an almost infinite depth to the way you can challenge yourself um, in sporting jiu-jitsu. I mean, I run out of things I want to do in self-defense very quickly. Right. <laughs> I don't know about you. At the end of the day, it's simple. You know, I... The, there's not that much complexity to it. And so I like to say that people walk in the door typically because they want self-defense, but they stay because it's fun. So, you know, it's, it's great that we can use our skills in a way that can make ourselves more confident and be able to handle potentially conflict in healthier ways. But 
at the end of the day, we stay because it's fun. And that's, that's you know, because yes. we like the people we're with. And so, you know, this idea that you can only have like a combative warrior martial art, we, we don't interact with our martial arts in that way at this time. Maybe if we lived in a culture that was more constantly at war, we would have to interact with it in that way because, you know, not doing that would result in us dying quicker. <laughs> but yeah. for most of it, it's a hobby. There are sh- certainly... In law enforcement, there are people who use their skills in their job, but most of us don't use martial arts in our job, um, not at least in the physical sense. I certainly no. can see... We see this in the jiu-jitsu community as well. Um, I think we see it in other martial arts too, where, you know, again, the mental aspect of it, if you mentally face challenges and maintain your calm and can overcome them that has applications in other areas of life i also practice iaido uh for all those sword fights i get into which is so far zero tell me about that because i've got a friend who practices i I don't know if it's iaido or something like it but he he puts on you know like a japanese suit and waves a sword around in his back garden and i i do wonder what the hell he's doing and why he's doing it Right, right. Can, yeah, you, can you explain yeah. what, 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 why would you want to do that, and and what do you get out of it? <clears throat> so this is a, a very good question because there are, as you have probably seen in other martial arts, there is a wide range of different levels of quality in the practice mm-hmm. of a martial art. So if you had someone that had taken a few classes um, at a jiu-jitsu school and then went off with his friends and just did backyard jiu-jitsu for the next 10 years, I don't think they would be a fair <laughs> representation of uh, jiu-jitsu. Um, yeah. So you have to be careful, particularly when it comes to pretending to be a warrior, which I think ties into our conversation today. There are representations in entertainment that people fall in love with and that they want to pretend that they are, are doing. There's an author called Ellis Amder um, in the classical Japanese martial arts world who has often described it as masturbatory cosplay um, where people just want to dress up like a samurai and wave a sword around and for some people that's all they're looking for okay Um, so why do I do Iaido? Well as I mentioned uh, at least the way that I interact with Jiu Jitsu today it's mostly as a combat sport. I love it Mm. I've used it in real life against people who actually want to kill me. It's a useful tool on my tool belt Um, but as I also mentioned there are elements to my own journey that it does not provide for and that includes how we interact with violence and how we develop ourselves into individuals who are better capable of dealing with that so what I find with the Aido is that it is actually closest to my firearms training target selection Mm mental focus, awareness of what's around you. Um, So, you know, we can get into all these esoteric Japanese words like zanshin or mushin, you know, Mm. awareness of what's around you, not allowing uh, your emotions to control your thoughts. There's a lot of physiological things that occur when you're in a high-stress combative situation, such as tunnel vision or tachypsychia, which is the distortion of the perception of time. And Mm. while you can never perfectly simulate those things in training there are ways to simulate slices of them. And so when you have some, perhaps you have someone that is of a larger weight class than you, sitting on you perhaps in side mount, 
and just putting all their weight into you and suddenly you can't breathe and you've been there for the last three minutes there is a mental fortitude that comes with not just giving up and tapping and so while it is not a direct application to a warrior experience the ability to train yourself to continue when it feels like you're going to like the suffering is never going to end is absolutely re you know you're able to take that mental skill and reapply it in a far worse situation later or at least you'll be better prepared for it if you've had it in small amounts over a long period of time you might think of like stress inoculation where you have small amounts of stress that desensitize you or prepare you for dealing with large amounts of stress and so you know iaido ends up being for me kind of more of the mental side of things it's challenging i think for people who haven't experienced it before to truly understand why would dressing up in these weird clothes waving a sword around have any impact on anything and quite frankly it's no different than my firearms training we had to inculcate physical behaviors in drawing the weapon from the holster acquiring the target and then applying violence to the target the only difference really is that in iaido iaido you have to generate the kinetic force whereas in firearms training the mm. gun provides the kinetic force so there's a certain amount of physical control that goes into iaido where the nuance of it you have to control your body in ways that um, you don't have to in firearms training but the irony of it all is that I find constant crossover between how I'm using mm -hmm. my body in jujitsu and how I'm using mm -hmm. it in Iaido. The amount of, perhaps you've seen the uh, knee walking in Japanese martial arts, uh, yeah. commonly called shiko. Um, perhaps you can think of some ways in jujitsu where moving around someone perhaps in knee on belly or uh, transitioning around to north-south and then back into side mount uh, the way you use your hips and the way you move your knees, um, I have found massive amounts of usefulness in uh, just shiko, uh, this weird Japanese knee walking and sitting um, mm. to apply on the ground uh, in, a, in a grappling context. And so the flexibility and the strength that I get from that um, is one of those crossover areas. Yeah. So, but I, I, if I was going to, that's kind of rambling on, the too long didn't read version of it is uh, it trains <laughs> my mind <laughs> in a way that I'm not getting from jujitsu. So I think, I think the knee walking stuff is probably like a side benefit, but to me, it sounds like it's the mental focus that is taking time to train the mental focus as something separate, because obviously in all martial arts, there's mental focus. But if you take a lot of the other stuff out so mm -hmm. that there's only the mental focus left, then it's. It's a just a different way of training, isn't it? And I, I can see the benefits there. Yeah. I, I think one of the things I forgot to mention is that there's also a focus on efficiency of movement, which comes mm. up in jiu-jitsu as well. But, yeah, it does. Yeah. Um, one of the things I struggle with in Iaido is learning simple things like walking with efficiency, turning with efficiency, using my upper body in a way that generates force without using my muscles too much. Um, yeah, yeah. For people who have chopped wood before, uh, there's a way to use the wood splitter, the axe, uh, that is more efficient than just swinging your arms. You'll wear yourself out if you just use your muscles yeah, yeah. over and over again. And it, it, it's those little things where learning to move efficiently come up as well. So, 
damn it, I've got interest in Aida now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. In all our spare time. <laughs> if I had all the time in the world, there are so many more martial arts I would take. <laughs> yeah. I mean, for, for me, the, the one that I wish I'd carried on with was capoeira. I, I did mm. like about three lessons, loved it. Yeah. But I think at that point, my wife said, you're doing too many martial arts now. You have to stop one of them. <laughs> there is, yeah, there is too much. Um, and it, for yeah. people that are listening, you know, really comes down to what's in your area. What do you have access to? I happen to have a diamond in the rough here in Alaska. There's, you know, someone who's well-known in, in the Iaido world, highly ranked. And so, it, you know, it just oh, right. made sense to train with him. Um, yeah, so yeah. Not everyone's going to have that. The other martial art that you do that I wanted to really ask you about was uh, Shui Jiao. Mm. Or Shui yes. Jiao? Shui Jiao. I, I never get yeah. the pronunciation. That's one okay. of them means a... sleepy time or something, and the other yep. one means the martial art. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I don't know if it'll come across in the in the podcast, um, but this actually came up because we speak Chinese in my home. And um, I was getting it wrong because my pronunciation is the worst of everyone here. My four-year-old corrects my, my pronunciation. <laughs> yeah. um, but Shui Jiao is a type of dumpling. <laughs> right. <laughs> shui Jiao is the wrestling. And if I'm tired and I want to go Shui Jiao, that's where I, I want to go sleep. <laughs> yeah. So the, yeah. the tonal difference is, is what makes a difference. Uh, yeah. So. so why did you start to get interested in Shui Jiao when you're already so deep into other martial arts? What, right. To me, it's in the judo world. It's mm -hmm. what you do when you're young and flexible and can bounce off the ground on your head without suffering any ill consequences. Right, And right. basically, as you get older, th those things seem like a really bad idea. But y yes. you seem to have started it later in your martial arts career than earlier. You're absolutely right. Um, and it comes out of the fact that jiu-jitsu people tend to be really bad at throws and takedowns. I wanted yeah. to improve that. And about six years ago, I got thrown really badly, threw my back out, spent most of the last six years rehabbing it. Um, I had been oh, to the wow. doctor. They couldn't find any kind of uh, bone or joint issue, so they were convinced it was soft tissue. They even tested for like weird blood diseases that could be causing it. But basically, every time I rolled, it would feel like my hip went out of joint, and there was just massive pain. I couldn't, you know, if I sat down on the toilet, I couldn't get back up again. Um, it was bad. Ooh. And so, and I am not the only jujitsu person who has had a bad takedown result in an injury. Mm. So looking at that, um, and perhaps drawing a little bit on classical Stoic philosophy, the idea that the obstacle is the way, I was like, well, I, I need to really start looking into why this happened and how it can be done. Because people don't typically, I say that, uh, people don't typically do things that wreck their body. But here we are in jujitsu where everyone that's been doing it for a certain period of time has joint issues and uh, muscle yeah. issues. At least one uh, surgery. You know? Yes. Um, so, but there are ways to train it um, safely. And so I started looking around at what was available. No one does Greco-Roman wrestling past 30. I, I, I've had people tell me that the best grappling art is, you know, Greco-Roman wrestling. You should go do that. I'm like, great. Where is a 40-year-old dad going to find some place to train that? <laughs> So it doesn't matter how, yeah, it doesn't matter how good it is. There's no one to train to do that. It doesn't make sense. So, you know, going back to this idea of a violence pie, the way that you get good at something is by taking other things away. If 
you want to get really good at striking, go train boxing. You know, you really want to get good at, at wrestling, go train jiu-jitsu. There's, there's no striking. I mean, yeah, limited striking, but generally no one's training striking in jiu-jitsu. Um, mm. You know, if you want to get really good at throws, go train one of the martial arts that focuses on that. Classically, in the jiu-jitsu world, it's judo. But given my uh, interaction in the Chinese world, I was like, well, you know what? I go to Taiwan every so often. Let's do shuai jiao. Because at the end of the day, and I know some people would hate to hear this, is they're not that different. Yes, the jacket has shorter <laughs> sleeves. Yes, they have different principles and different training methodologies they emphasize. But at the end of the day, it's jacket wrestling. And that obviously applies in jiu-jitsu as well. And nice thing about Shuai Zhou, it also has no jacket wrestling. So the school that I'm working with, which is, uh, there's a man called Sunny Manon in California. There's a school called Guangwu Shuai Zhou, has online classes. And you think, okay, you can't learn throwing from online classes. And you're right. Um, but with dedicated training partners who also yeah. are interested in throwing, um, you can take his lessons and work together and he provides feedback and you can send him videos and you can work together. And so every Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I start our jujitsu classes off with a shui jiao warm up is what we like to call it. But it results in, you know, learning the details of a throw, practicing it on each other and then applying it in a competitive, non-cooperative situation. And so oh, nice. uh, it, it complements uh, the jujitsu. It allows me to my... Uh, Chinese in-laws are a little bit happier that I'm doing something that has a Chinese element to it. <laughs> and yeah, some I, you cultural. Know, that's nice. Right, right. Well, and that's the problem. You know, you get back to nationalism. Even today, we have not extracted nationalism from the martial arts. There is a national pride to it to a certain degree. And I find that heavily in the Chinese communities that I interact with. Um, but that's beside the point, so... So that's uh, why I do Shui Jiao now. I mean, that's that's amazing. That so you're so you're teaching the jujitsu classes and you're integrating Shui Jiao into the the, the the first bit of it. You know, the the warm up so, and the and the stand up section. So my teacher allows me to uh, integrate Shui Jiao into the beginning of the jujitsu class. I'm oh nice. Not, well, that's great. I, I might fill in once in a while, but I'm not nearly good enough at jujitsu to be teaching just yet. <laughs> So right, okay, um, yeah. So, uh, so yeah. Well, I, so I've never heard of a jiu-jitsu school that uh, that has a like a shui jiao stand-up component. So this is sure. quite unique. Well, um, so I started at Gracie Baja School as well, and uh, we had judo on Saturdays, um, and right. the academy I train at now also had a judo component on Saturdays. Until about two, three years ago, there was a change of ownership classes changed we no longer had uh, a judo instructor he ended up going to a different school so it was mm. like well now we had a gap you know we got an mma program we have our jiu-jitsu program we used to kind of have muay thai but not so much anymore so it's like well this is an area i need and since i was recovering from this injury oh and i do want to say the practice of the solo techniques in shui jiao so um, they have various um, body strengthening, flexibility, and agility exercises that are done. 100% rehab my back. I spent about four oh, years wow. managing the pain with yoga, and that worked. 
you know, I had been to the doctors, I had gotten x-rays, I had gotten, you know, uh, physical therapy advice from them. But at the end of the day, it was basically yoga that was just managing the pain. About two years ago, I started this Shui Jiao and I noticed during particularly their hip exercises, they have ones called Chang Yao, Fan Yao. Yao is kind of like the core and waist. They don't really have a, a word in English that quite matches with it, but yeah, we use that word in the, it's in the Tai Chi classics, Yao, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So th- there's all these exercises, Xiao Shuan Yao, Shuan Yao, Fan Yao, Chang Yao. Chang Yao is like lengthening the waist. I would get these clicks in my hip and one day there was a pop and everything felt better. That What, what you're describing sounds, it sounds like an SI joint thing to me. Um, Absolutely. I, my, uh, I, I, I don't know if you've read my blog recently, but I popped my SI joint out and it was Chinese exercises that put it back in and there was like a pop, like you said. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I do Bado and Jin as well. I seem to recall your uh, article was about Bado and Jin specifically. Yeah, yeah. Is that correct? Yeah. yeah. Um, the uh, I forget which one it's called in Chinese, but the one where you're like wagging your head back and forth. Yeah. That one, I would get the same clicking as I was going back and forth. Mm. Um, so, yeah, at, at the end of the day, uh, uh, it helped my back as well and so it's been about two years now where i can roll in jujitsu without fear of my hip going out wow. uh, i no longer fear throws i had a, a former wrestler do a takedown on me and i i didn't feel like i was in danger i mean it yeah it was a, a rough takedown but you know i i've been able to build myself back up using shui jiao um, not be afraid of throws learn how to be comfortable standing and yeah. uh integrate it with jujitsu so Oh, that's fantastic. You'll have to tell me how that goes in the future because I, I'd love to see a developed group of students who are using Shui Jia, mm. like see some of those throws pulled off in a competition. Like if, if you can teach enough people that it integrates into the competition scene, it'd be, it'd be great to watch. At the end of the day, when you get right into it, it's not all that different than any other kind of jacket wrestling. You know, it's really, I, I know people, I know it's different than judo, but... The way it integrates, there's plenty of judo people that make it work in jiu-jitsu, and it's fundamentally the same thing. You know, you could say they're like, yeah, yeah. I was going to say close cousins, but I don't want to suggest that they're related necessarily, but they function the same no, way. No, I think its origins lie in the Mongol wrestling, really. Yes. Which isn't connected to judo that at all, really. But like you say, that it they exist in the same space. Right. I mean... There's only so many ways to hip throw somebody, you know. <laughs> yeah, their their hip throw, Rue, is the same as I learned a hip throw in judo. <laughs> so Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm afraid I, I could feel like I could talk to you for hours, but we're going to have to round things off because my computer's going to run out of um, battery. Sounds good. Um, that's the one downside of my mobile recording studio, also my <laughs> car. Is that I can't charge my computers. <laughs> yeah. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you for your time. So. Yeah. Uh, thanks. And I'm really happy that we got to talk about all the things I want to talk about. We did warriorship, philosophy, and your other martial arts as well. So that's great. Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah. And I'd recommend everyone checks out your Walking with the Tengu podcast for more philosophical insights. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. 
You can find out more about the Tai Chi Notebook podcast at www.thetaichinotebook.com. You can support us by becoming a patron. Head over to patreon.com forward slash Tai Chi Notebook. Thanks for listening and I hope you'll tune in next time. Bye.